Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high-regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. Welcome to Tech on Reg, everybody. I hope everyone is still hunkering down, washing their hands, and staying safe, but more importantly, sane during this crazy time. Right now, I know we're sort of in the thick of the COVID-19 global pandemic. So once again, lots of appreciation from me and I know uh, my guests today for, for tuning in and giving us some of your attention as we talk about some financial services related on uh, technology related topics. Before we get started, a quick word from one of our sponsors, InvestNet Yodli. Beginning April 7th, InvestNet Yodli has launched an online events platform with industry experts to enable you to keep up your connections, learning, and discussion of key topic areas for the financial services industry. For more information and to participate in the conversation, please visit yodli.com slash launchpad. I had the pleasure of moderating the first webinar where we discussed the impact of COVID-19 on your business. Stay tuned for lots more interesting content being put out by our friends at InvestNet Yodli. Okay, now on to today's episode. As a practitioner of law, I've been heavily focused on the area of collections and receivables management for over a decade. Tech on Reg listeners also know that AI, its impact, its regulation, and all of its applications are, quite frankly, a real obsession of mine. And today, I am very excited because I get to combine two of my absolutely favorite nerdy topics with our guest, Sheila Monroe, Chief Operating Officer of True Accord. Welcome to the show, Sheila. Thank you, Dara. Happy to be here. Awesome. So Sheila, you joined True Accord in November 2018 as COO, right? That's correct. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience in the financial services industry prior to joining True Accord? Yeah, sure. I think I got into the uh, financial services industry and the collection industry specifically by accident, like most people do. And, uh, <laughs> you know, after having tons of fun in my t- early 20s, doing things like selling Kirby vacuum cleaners and stuff like that, I uh, responded to a collection agency ad and joined, got into it, loved it. Long story short, ended up in the credit card and banking industry, and really loved the collection aspect of it. So uh, anything that involves that strategy and risk management. So I I worked at a couple lending institutions, Alliance Data and and Barclay Card before coming into True Accord. And tell us a little bit about True Accord, kind of its place in the industry and some of the cool stuff that it's doing. Yeah, True Accord is awesome. So, you know, when I was in with my last employer, I was working with Barclay Card to digitize their collection universe. And, you know, you can only go so far without machine learning and a lot of technology and a lot of engineers to to help on that roadmap. And when I found out what True Accord was doing, I was like, you know, these guys are doing it right. And, you know, just immediately when I spoke to Ohad Samet, who's the CEO and co-founder, really resonated. So True Accord started in 2013, basically from Ohad having a bad collection experience and thinking, wow, uh, this could really be, really be done differently. And I think he forgot to pay a 
store credit card or something in in his version of the story anyway which may you know (laughs) these things grow take on a life of their own had sort of a really short-tempered abusive collection agent on the other end of the phone for a single missed payment and you know with his background in in machine learning and ai and scoring fraud and, and 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 other things that he had been involved with thought certainly i i can invent a better way to do this so TrueCourt is what, you know, the average person would know as a collection agency, right? That's correct. So we, although more recently we've gone into the pre-charge-off space, traditionally we've been in the post-charge-off recovery space. Unlike most collection agencies who come in for the day and, and look to call the same card holders and, and account holders three or four times a day, True Accord is a digital first, mainly email first collection agency. So the first communication a consumer is going to get from True Accord is an email. That's pretty pretty different. It is different. It is different. We think it's more consumer friendly for a lot of reasons. It's, we look at convenience. So the basic collection model is built on a call and collect model. And the FDCPA will tell you when it's that's, conv- the, yes. that's the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act for the non-industry, non-lawyer people at home. Thank you, Dara. Sure. Um, yeah. So, the, so the government decides when it's convenient to interact with consumers, but it, when you start to switch to a digital and particularly email environment, you'll find out that when it's convenient for consumers is not necessarily eight a.m. to nine p.m. as the FDCPA allots for. 26% of consumers who deal with True Accord are opening emails and interacting with our website outside of those hours. It's when it's convenient for them. You know, they've gotten kids put to bed or they're done, you know, doing whatever they're doing for the day. And so that's just one of the ways we communicate with consumers. And there's, there's some pretty sophisticated algorithms that sort of power the, the cadence and the contents of the communications that a debtor may receive from your organization, right? That's correct. We use machine learning to decide certain things like when we send a communication, what channel that communication is sent from, what is the tone of that communication, what's the offer, if there's a settlement offer or repayment plan offer. And the interesting thing about the way machine learning can add value there is it can take what would be a telephone conversation and sort of mimic that two-way dialogue. So for example, if everyone comes into True Accord, starts getting the same sort of messaging, based on how they interact with us or don't interact with us is, is what dictates our next communication. And in some cases, let's say you opened and, and clicked on one of our emails, you went to our website, you looked at payment plan options and didn't see what you needed. So we have consumers who look at payment plan options and don't sign up. When I say mimic a conversation, we have what we call reactive emails that within say 15 minutes or so, will send another email and acknowledge in that same tone that moved you to the website before, hey, we noticed you went on the website, didn't see something that you wanted, check again. And, and when you click this time, it'll take you to new payment options. It's actually mimicking that dialogue that you would have in a, in a regular collection conversation. So, I mean, I think all of that is, one, incredibly innovative. So on a few different, on a few different fronts. So 
first and foremost is sort of the digital first strategy, right? Just the purely the modes of communication as being the primary digital way to interact with consumers. And then layered on top of that is the intelligence behind the modes of communication in terms of tone and tenor and contents and the cadence and uh, what they're, you know, what the consumer is reading and clicking. So I think I could probably answer the, the latter part of this myself, but I'm curious in your view why more agencies aren't taking sort of that digital first approach in your view? Yeah, I think there's two things that hold collection agencies in particular back. Uh, One is fear, because if you think about it, the litigation in the the collection space is, is pretty significant. And for speaking to another collection agency owner recently, we were commiserating over some of the lawsuits and the frivolity of them. And, you know, in some cases, this agency had been using the same collection letter for 15 years and is now starting to get sued on it. You know, it's like, so how do you kind of reconcile? I'm still trying to figure out what I've done for the last 15 years without getting sued. And now uh, you've got really unclear perspectives coming out from the CFPB. People are looking for a little bit more consent or approval to go, to move forward. I went to a collection conference in February and still had potential clients saying, well, are you allowed to send email? You know, don't you have to have consent to send email? And you don't generally, and New York State being maybe an exception. But it's the, so part of it's fear what am I going to get in trouble for? Because I don't have really clear outlines set, set forth from the CFPB or another regulatory body. Well, we should definitely circle back our conversation to sort of the CFPB rulemaking and sort of what is the current lay of the land with regards to those email communications and digital communications in general. And I wonder sometimes if some of the confusion is, you know, people conflating the rules about email with the rules about text messaging and, you know, the consent requirements that are mandated in the Telephone Consumer Protection Act and You know, oh, you know, all of that electronic stuff, it's just all the same, which I suspect may be sort of the the impetus for the fear. But no, but as you know, and as probably many listeners know, they are are not in fact the same. Those technologies are quite different and the laws governing them are, are quite different as well. Yeah. And I think the other thing that keeps maybe the fear is the real thing, but, (laughs) but the other um, reason for lack of innovation is margin pressure. So there's really this over the years, clients of collection activity looking to, as we all do, right? Get more out of our vendors for less. So you've got clients squeezing you down on margins and then wondering why you can't innovate. And I think that's a really difficult place to to navigate. And it's absolutely necessary that agencies figure that out. And I think then if I'm a lender, there's, there's also another reason, which is, you know, lenders don't have all the reasons to, to be fearful or have margin pressure, but even within their own environments, it's generally a resource thing. If I've got a certain number of engineers to work on digital, I'm going to spend the money on how people apply for credit, how they get credit granted, how they get credit lines managed and increased, and how they get service. And I'm going to really put collection on the back burner. Those folks will figure it out later. 
Right. Cause we hire, cause we hire vendors to do that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. You got it. So if you had to guess what sort of percentage of agencies and servicers do you think actually are using a digital collection strategy? What's interesting. So I, I, I was reviewing the, there's a 2019 state of collections report that's put out jointly by TransUnion and the IT group. I probably pronounced that wrong. <laughs> and they put this out every year and 61% of responders to that said they use email, 16% use SMS. But what's really interesting is when you, and this report didn't have it, but when you start talking to those agencies or start looking at the percentage of communications they do that way, it's very low. And I'll give you a couple data points. That'd be great. There's a collection agency that, that happens to compete with us with some of our clients. Um, I've had a relationship with them for years. I've hired them before in the past when I was on the other side of the fence. And they are sort of touted as another digital agency. And I highly respect them. And, uh, but I had a chance to uh, speak with some of my friends there recently. And I said, you know, what percent? of your collection activity is actually done digitally. You know, what percent of, of it is email-based or SMS-based? And they said it's about 20%. Now that's high, right? This is an agency that is, is selling themselves as a digital agency. Another frame of reference is one of our clients who is a, who is a large by, international- by I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but by comparison, what percentage is that for True Accord? So 96% of people who engage with us, who pay, end up paying, are, is all done self-serve, all digital interaction, no human involved in it. We have about 1% of consumers that enter our ecosystem ever, ever touch an agent of ours. And so you probably know this statistic because you're, you're a geek in this space, right? Do you know what that average workload is of an agent in collections accounts per employee? I don't know if I know the most recent one, but why don't you go ahead and share that? Well, so I've, uh, from my experience, it was about 2,500 and I've talked to third party agencies recently who, who are saying about 1,100, 1,200. In True Accord, we run at 80,000 accounts per, per agent. That's a lot higher. Staggering, right? That's a lot higher. Yeah, so 96%. So when our, as I was going, this uh, international lender bank got all their collection agencies together and they were talking about digital being super important to them and they they've seen the value of it we've been doing business with them for almost a couple of years and testing us out and they're so hooked on digital that they're pushing their whole agency network and they shared a statistic that was that three to four percent of collections recoveries in 2019 across their entire agency network was from digital collections and digital efforts, three to four percent. And they're setting a target for 2020 of 20%. And so when you kind of want to know how far behind is it, it's it, pretty it's infantile. Pretty yeah. Yeah. Digital collection is, is a bit infantile. So, you know, we use the word digital a lot and I think when we're talking about digital right now, particularly as it impacts the, you know, the receivables management space, we're talking about the use of email, we're talking about the use of SMS, 
Maybe we're talking about, you know, some interactive, you know, virtual agents like a, like an IVA product like Interactions has. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that's digital. But other than maybe the IVA product, I think in the minds of a lot of servicers, digital doesn't necessarily include or incorporate the use of AI and machine learning, right? It's one thing to be able to shoot off some pre-programmed emails and have it done in sort of a robotic process, not terribly dissimilar from a call script, but I think what you, the additional layer, so you've got the, the digital modes of communication, the additional layer that you guys are doing with AI and machine learning is, is vastly, vastly different. So to me, I, I, I do feel like the industry needs to at least start taking more of those baby steps, but then uh, getting comfortable with taking the next step like you guys have done is, I think, going to, I wouldn't call that a baby step. I call that a, a massive, massive leap. You're absolutely right. It's one thing to take your letter deck and turn it into emails and right. press send, you know, as you're, as you're talking to a customer or to set up those parameters that say every fifth day I'm going to send an SMS and every sixth day I'm going to do this or, or whatever. But, we, but the machine learning element is the part that gives it the power. It's the part the that... Right. Yeah. Scalability, the power, the way to connect with the humans that you're trying to connect through your digital channels. It's that ability to do something a human couldn't do, which is this particular consumer just did this or responded this way or didn't respond. And I know every email I sent to that consumer and every SMS and every ringless voicemail drop, I know that the best next best activity is this one. And we see it time and time again. We just onboarded a client in um, January who emailed us last week and said, you're already outperforming my call and collect agency. We don't make any phone calls. None for most of our clients. And we still... So, I mean, one that's amazing for for you guys. Um, And from everything that, you know, I know about the company and I've, I've really had the pleasure of getting to know the folks in your general counsel's office and what you guys are doing is, is really incredible. And I know you all are advocates of sort of helping the industry move forward in, you know, an intelligent and responsible, innovative way. So I know the folks at True Accord are advocates of responsible innovation, but at the same time, you guys are you know, you kind of had the market cornered, you know, on, on the technology. So if you are giving advice to, you know, uh, another agency on how to dip their toe into some of this technology, you know, what advice would you, would you give them? Like how, how would you even start? Yeah, that's a good question. I think first of all, I would put yourself in the position of the consumer, right? The consumers that we are dealing with, I know people call them debtors in our our business, and I don't like that term, but they're they're consumers who got into a little bit of trouble. But if you think about their situation, they've gotten themselves overextended. They're very stressed out. Their lives are as busy as ours. And probably the last thing that they would like is a phone call, right? And the content of that communication is really important, but also the methodology of that communication. So I think first, companies are getting their feet wet by sending a few emails and seeing what happens. If you're going to go to email, hire the right people that know how to do email would be, would be a, a 
big recommendation of ours. We've seen collection agencies try to send email and go 99% into spam folders. Mm. Now, you know, we, we like to see that on one level. But if you're gonna, <laughs> my advice would be if you're going to use email in mass, it's very difficult. Um, and hire the people who know how to optimize email and manage your domains and subdomains. The next is about um, the use of artificial intelligence or machine learning. I think there's a lot of controversy and will be much more controversy on the type of information that you use about consumers. hundred so, percent. Yeah. And so and the difference with the true accord is it, I remember when I told someone I was going to come work for this company that uses artificial intelligence. I'm like, Oh yeah. I saw all that stuff you learn off the internet about people and you, you know, all this creepy stuff. And I'm like, no, 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 we don't do any of that. So the machine learning at true accord, we pretty much use a few debt characteristics like age of debt, type of debt, some creditor settings in the algorithm that chooses the communication and the rest of it is how you interact with us. And then the behaviors drive the rest. The behaviors drive the rest. It's not you know, in, invasive and it doesn't have to be some invasive, creepy information. You know, our algorithm still able to say, it's this communication, this channel, this time of day, this content, this offer. It works very well. It's interesting because the topic of ethical AI has been one that I've studied, I've explored. Um, the most recent episode of the podcast, I actually interviewed um, a PhD from Oxford by the name of Clara Durodi, who just authored the book, Decoding AI in Financial Services. And the power of AI is, is enormous. So you do have to use it responsibly. You do have to use it ethically. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how in the future, as it becomes more prevalent, particularly in the receivables management space, how it inevitably ends up getting regulated because the minute its power is, is shown, the rules will follow whether or not a regulator truly understands the technology and the power behind what they're regulating right. is the subject, again, of a different podcast. But speaking of regulators and rules that they like to say they're going to make and then don't actually pass, I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry to the CFPB fans out there. I couldn't help myself. I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about kind of the current state of the CFPB rulemaking process on debt collection, because there's a little, there's a little bit of a bright spot in there especially for you guys, gentle nod to sort of communicating with consumers via email. I think it goes without saying that the main federal statute that governs debt collection practices, which is, as we talked about before, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act is super old, super old. No rules and regs have ever been drafted uh, about this law that was passed in the 70s. So there's obviously never been any explicit guidance about digital communication. So Sheila, why don't you kind of give everyone a little overview about what the CFPB has had to say about the topic? Yeah. So it, it is interesting to watch this play out because what my takeaway from the CFPB uh, guidance on rulemaking was that there was some effort to cap the number of phone calls that could be made, right? Which is good for consumers, yes. but, but in my opinion, not, not nearly far enough. Seven, seven attempts per debt per week could leave someone with even only three debts getting 21 collection calls 
per per week, which is a lot. And but at the same time, the CFPB did allude to the fact that digital channels such as SMS and email were okay to use, right? But, but it's such a vague nod of approval that it still leaves people, uh, collection agencies, collection firms, confused. Like they don't want to dip their toe in the water because they don't really know what that means. So there's it's been like, some- It's like, this is a good idea. We're not going to tell you exactly how to use it because yeah. then we might not be able to find you later if we don't like the way you're doing it. This is the cynic in, right? This is the cynic in me completely coming out um, as someone who's defended, you know, uh, mm. companies within the, the arm industry for 10 plus years. Here's what's interesting to me. And, you know, we can just sort of have a chat about this, but why philosophically would a regulator or anyone, quite frankly, want to minimize the number of ways a consumer can interact with anyone, let alone whether it's their bank, whether it's a debt collection company, whether it's a retailer that they're buying something from. It just seems so odd to me in this day and age that you would want to limit those types of modes of communication. Yeah, I think if if I put myself in the CFPB's shoes, I I really believe I'm advocating for consumers, right? I I really have to start from there. I think the CFPB believes that they're advocating for consumers. They know that a lot of consumers in debt perhaps lack some of the, the resources to know how to handle debts differently, maybe, and and I'm kind of guessing here. So I think that the limitation factor is about not having those, those few unscrupulous companies harassing people, right? Ironically, after, after the the ruling was, do you think you can harass someone via email? No, this is what I I was going. There were two in May uh, 2019, two publications. I just looked at the headlines. One was debt collectors could send unlimited emails and texts under the proposed rules, right? An unlimited. The other, in another, uh, in a market watch uh, article was debt collectors could soon be allowed to call, text, and email you every day. And, you know, you and I have talked about how difficult this is. Like I said, just to be a company who can send email in your own name takes an extraordinary amount of effort and years of building up a domain reputation because if you don't have that, all of your email is just going to go to spam. Yep. And if any company tried to harass someone sending excessive emails, they, they would never reach an inbox. But I also think that there's this thing about consumers being more empowered now than ever to decide how they want to communicate. And so some of the discussion of regulation maybe isn't even necessary, right? Consumers can email or opt out of your email and never see it. Consumers can block your SMS, block your phone number from calling or texting. Again, you can't harass people through SMS because just like internet service providers can have rules in to go to spam, so are the cell phone providers putting their own rules in about spam if the consumer doesn't want to block it themselves. So the notion of harassing through these modes of communication is 
is probably a little naive. It's some, it's well, and most, and most certainly if you didn't have consent to, to be texting someone in the first place on their cell phones, you've got a separate FCC problem under the Telephone Communication Protection Act. And, and then you will get in trouble to the tune of up to $1,500 a pop for every bad text message that you send. So when we're talking about texts, I, I think those kinds of headlines that you talk about, I know as an industry participant and legal practitioner, I find so frustrating because like, no, there are already rules in place to prevent those kinds of things. And if a company does some, does do something foolish and flout those rules and, and sends a, you know, an unreasonable number of text messages without consent, they're going to get nailed. Like a plaintiff's attorney is going to find out and they're going to file one of those lovely class actions that we all deal with. And they're going to have a case. Now, the uncharted territory is sort of on email, but I think you're right, unless you're doing it correctly, the likelihood of those emails, first of all, hitting your inbox for a consumer to actually see them is, is low. People can control how their spam filters work in addition to the default rules ahead of time. So it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm still sort of struggling to see where, where the fears lie. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but I buy one thing on overstock.com. I'm getting, I'm getting 67 emails a day with, with you know, with coupons yes. and, uh, and, you know, this item that you looked at in your shopping basket has been left idle for 42 seconds. So you better go back and buy it. It's not any sort of behavioral characteristics that a consumer isn't used to already right. if, they're, if they're interacting on the internet at all. Yes. And I, I don't know if you've experienced this, but it seems like even when you unsubscribe, you, you start getting subscribed back in in 30 days <laughs> to those retail. Uh, yeah. It's like, are you sure? Dara, you left the shoes in the cart. They're, right. still, they're still there. Yes. They're still available if you want to buy them. Sheila, I'm interested. The arm industry right now, particularly in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, really dealing with sort of an unprecedented amount of regulatory scrutiny, guidance from individual states, quasi-guidance from the federal government as to what's okay and what's not okay. And, you know, just for, for listeners, just to give you a little bit of perspective, every, every state in which a debt collection agency is licensed in and you need to obtain licensure for every state in which you want to operate in one form or another has started to issue guidance, not all of which is consistent about how collection companies right now are permitted to interact or not interact with, with consumers. State of Nevada, for example, was the first state in mid-March that kind of came out affirmatively after the governor put in their uh, emergency order and said, you know, debt collection companies are not essential businesses and all affirmative collection has to cease outright. Other states have followed suit with, you know, similar guidance, modified guidance, and every state is doing something different. So from the hats off to all of the chief compliance officers out there who've got to keep track of this. And I know I'm certainly trying to help clients sort through and make sense of how you actually operate your business and the sort of game of whack-a-mole. But given the fact that this is the present reality for the foreseeable future, why do you think that right now your digital strategy is more important than ever? Yeah, that's a good question, Dara. I think, again, there are so many things out of the hands of consumers right now. 
the last thing we'd want to to have people not having control over is the way they're receiving communication in in their preferred channel so if i'm worried about all of the things that that are going on in the world right now you know with, with covid-19 illness unemployment this that and the other do i really right now want to get a phone call from my creditor probably not it's probably not the way that i'm wired to deal with things uh, where it might take a little bit uh, a, a deep breath and sitting down when i'm mentally prepared to dis to to look at that so i think that being able to use less intrusive strategies right now i, I think all the time but right now is even more important and Sheila, this isn't the first time you've had to sort of reevaluate that strategy during, you know, a crisis, right? Uh, you were at Barclays in 2008 when the global recession hit, and you actually kind of piloted some innovative projects there, didn't you? That's right. We, um, you know, as the recession, uh, the last big recession was looming, there's this realization that being in debt can be new for some people and the way that you might communicate with people who let, let's let's face it some people have being in debt as a way of living and they they know how it works they're going to get the call they're going to talk to you but in 2008-2009 there were people who suddenly found themselves in a financial crisis a personal financial crisis being behind on bills for the first time that were never, ever, ever going to talk to their creditor. They were never going to answer a phone call. They were humiliated. They were ashamed and didn't know, first of all, that they had options. And so we started talking at that point about, look, how can we get people to see that they have options, that we're not just going to call and, and, and threaten people that are down on their luck right now. And so we ended up rolling out a collection website. It took us about nine months to get a fairly sophisticated website out. The first iteration was, you know, not what it turned out to be in the long run, but, and then how do we use our outbound communications such as IVM, an automated message out there, or a phone call, a letter, and an SMS to push people onto that website and see that they had options. And it was amazing. Um, you know, part of me thought, mm, it's just going to cannibalize easy, you know, sloppy payer payments. But part of me thought, no, I think, I think there's more to it than that. What we found was in within about two months, the development of that website paid for itself because we had people that were five and six months past due who had never spoken to on the phone after a hundred or more phone calls. They went on and self-served. They went, signed up for payment plans, signed up for, uh, uh, commitments. And the, the thing that was neat to see about that as we continued to optimize for, for years to come is when people went on their website and did things for themselves, there was a higher average payment, there was a higher promise kept percent, and there was a higher net promoter score when they got to do it themselves. Which is pretty I bet amazing. There were, I bet there were also less complaints and disputes along there the way. There were. Yeah. Interesting <laughs> you bring that up because, um, yeah, complaints about dialer calls is probably the biggest complaint reason in any bank, for example. Right. And yeah, it, it resolves those issues too. So, one thing you mentioned, and you know, you sort of sharing your experience in sort of having to step back during what 
up until now was, you know, the, the largest, you know, financial crisis that, you know, present, present history has, has experienced. And that was a major turning point for the arm industry in terms of regulation and changing practices and reprioritizing strategy. This might be another one of those, you know, moments in time and moments in history. So that perspective is really great. And, you know, I I think I want to wrap up by just saying you mentioned that part of what you learned in that 2008 experience at Barclays was, you know, notifying consumers, your consumers, that they did have options. You know, it was difficult to figure out a way to get that message out. Well, to do my part, for anyone listening to this episode uh, of Tech on Reg, you should also know that if you are a consumer dealing with your own personal uh, economic hardships, uh, like many others are right now, related to what's going on in the world, you also do have options. And you should make sure to inquire about those options if you feel like you need to. RMAI International, the uh, Receivables Management International Trade Association, has issued guidance already to its membership. Many of the really wonderful and responsible companies out there who are responsible for servicing and managing uh, a lot of this nation's debt have implemented hardship policies in, in relation to the global pandemic that's happening. And there are organizations who are absolutely going to be willing to work with you and to help you and want to, you know, help make this whole situation um, as easy as possible. I counsel a lot of those clients. I feel very proud and blessed to be able to work with companies who take their responsibilities very seriously. So this is Tech on Reg doing its part to inform the consumers of the United States that they too have, have options and that those companies are working hard to figure out a way to get everyone through this uh, with the least amount of pain as possible. And I'm sure True Accord is doing the same. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, some of the things that when you mentioned things changing after a crisis like this, I think some of the, the more profound uh, changes that this downturn, because of its unique pandemic tie-in, is it's really changing the workforce and the way we administer the workforce, right? Pretty Absolutely. much everyone's had to shift really quickly to work at home environments. And I think one of the lasting things that we'll we'll see out of this is... Uh, is in many, many industries, this kind of shift toward more digital, shift towards less reliance on, on contact center type of help. And that's that help that is there because you do need people to talk to it at times, no matter what your strategy is. But uh, we could see a, a largely distributed workforce for, for many years to come or for the, the, for the way forward. It's really interesting. Well, the better your technology is, the easier it is we'll be able uh, to implement those strategies uh, long-term should you choose to do so. Sheila, thank you so much for your time with me this afternoon. I hope you had, uh, you'll be had a good chat with me. I know I certainly enjoyed it. And thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode. Take care. <laughs>